May I just say to all uh, delegates, um, I apologize for the way this process has unfolded um, and uh, I am deeply sorry. I also understand the, the deep disappointment. But I think as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. BSI presents The Standard Show, the podcast that brings you the stories behind the standards with Matthew Childs and Cindy Paragill. Today's episode is on Making Sense of COP26. Delegates, thank, thank you. Thank you, friends. We, 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 should be, we, we need to proceed. Thank you very much. Um, so given what interventions we've had, um, I propose that the revised proposal is adopted uh, as orally amended. A revised version, a written version, will be issued shortly. Hearing no objections, it is so decided. Now, that was the rather emotional voice of British politician Alok Sharma and the moment he brought down his gavel to symbolically end two weeks of intense negotiations by delegates of nearly 200 nations at a pretty important event and the subject of today's episode. Hello and welcome to The Standard Show. My name is Matthew Childs and I am with... Cindy Paragill. How are you doing, Cindy? Discovering that it's true, fortune really does favour the brave. Very good. I like that one. And you, Matthew? For me, it's very much eyes forward and shoulders back. I might borrow that one. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the aim of this podcast is to bring you the stories behind the standards. And in this episode, we'll be making sense of what happened at COP26. But before we get to that really important stuff, it is early January, Cindy, and I probably should have said Happy New Year. A very Happy New Year's to you too. (laughs) It is our first episode of the year, and I just want to check, New Year's resolutions. Are you a New Year's resolutions kind of person? Yep, I would say so. It's a bit of a tradition for me, really. Um, I do enjoy, you know, the process of reflecting on the past year and setting some exciting goals for the new year. So um, every year in that period between Christmas and New Year's, I tend to sit down with a nice cup of tea and make goals for around six to seven areas in my life. So really get clear on why and what it is that I want to achieve and then make a step-by-step plan to achieve it by breaking it down into the tiniest little footsteps. So I set myself up to succeed, if you know what I mean. Well, that that sounds incredibly impressive. It almost sounds like New Year's resolutions are by spreadsheet. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That is exactly what it is. I feel like we should be coming back every month and doing a month review of your progress. Well, not on the pod, but I will certainly be doing that. Uh, what about you, Matthew? Well, I, I don't tend to make them really and certainly don't don't uh, adopt a spreadsheet approach for them. But I do try and have a sort of sporting goal lined up. So... As you know, I ran the London Marathon back in October, which was, I finally got to run it. It was twice postponed because of COVID. And I've got another endurance event lined up uh, this time in April. Mm -hmm. Um, Another one postponed twice because of COVID. And that's a long distance cycle event called the Tour of Flanders in Belgium, obviously. Um, ridden over pretty lumpy terrain with the added bonus of short sections of cobbles and climbs and even some cobbled climbs. So it's quite a tough ride. Um, and the ride I'll be doing, it's the, it sort of takes place the day before the professional race. So it's the sportive and there'll be a few thousand of us on these cobbled climbs in, in Flanders. 
and it's uh, nearly 220 kilometers, but I have a feeling it's going to feel a lot longer than that, especially if the weather is terrible, uh, which it usually is in, uh, in Belgium that time of year. So that's what I'll be doing over the next three months, training for that. That's amazing. Good luck. You must keep us posted on your journey. <laughs> now, it's the, the Babylonians, apparently. What Babylonians? 4,000 years ago, started all this New Year's resolution stuff, making promises to the gods in the hope they'd earn good favour in the coming year. Did you know that? No, I didn't. But I hope the podcasting gods will smile favourably on us and the Standard Show this year. I think they will. So in this episode of the podcast, we are taking a look back at that important event of late 2021, COP26, which took place over two weeks in November in Glasgow. Yes, it's hard to believe, isn't it, that as we record, it's actually only 55 days since the end of the negotiations. And at this point, we probably should remind ourselves what COP actually means. So for nearly three decades, the United Nations has been bringing together almost every country on the planet for global climate summits called COPS, which stands for the Conference of the Parties. Now, I think it's fair to say that In that time, climate change has gone from being a fringe issue to a global priority. Last year was the 26th annual summit. And at the top of the episode, we heard Alok Sharma, the president of COP26, bringing down his gavel to signal the end of the negotiations. But really, Glasgow was just the end game, the culmination of work by the UK presidency and other countries over the course of 2020 and 2021. The story of COP26 has its roots in COP21, which took place in Paris in 2015. There, for the first time, every country agreed to work together to limit global warming to well below 2 degrees and aim for 1.5 degrees to adapt to the impact of a changing climate and to make money available to deliver on those aims. Under the Paris Agreement, countries committed to bring forward national plans, setting out how much they reduce their emissions, known as Nationally Determined Contributions, or NDCs. They agreed that every five years they would come back with an updated plan that would reflect their highest possible ambition at that time. COP26 was the moment countries revisited climate pledges made under the 2015 Paris Agreement. Ahead of it, they were asked for their plans to cut emissions by 2030. The goal is to keep cutting emissions until they reach net zero by mid-century. So the event was um, split into a couple of zones. There was a blue zone managed by the UN, which hosted the formal negotiations. And then there was a green zone managed by the UK government, a platform for the general public, youth groups, academia and others to have their voices heard through events, exhibitions, workshops, you know, that sort of thing. And um, outside of the zones, plenty of fringe events too. That's right. And as well as focusing on the core climate pledges, there are a number of theme days too, covering nine large and important issues in their own right, including finance, energy, transport, science and innovation and youth empowerment. Now, not surprisingly, all of this made COP26, well, enormous. More than 40,000 registered participants, including 22,000 party delegates, 14,000 observers and nearly 4,000 media representatives. And it was a carbon neutral event too. In fact, COP26 was the first event to be certified against PAS 2060, the international standard on carbon neutrality. Check out episode 47 of the podcast for more information on that particular standard. 
Now, to help us make sense of COP26, I spoke to Martin Baxter, environmental management standards maker for more than 25 years. We'll hear Martin speak about the difference between what COP26 was trying to achieve and what it actually achieved, and also the role of standards as a force for good in driving climate action. Neatly spliced between the two parts of the conversation with Martin, we have our standards desk of news and the latest of my favourite standard. This time, BSI Sahar Dinesh tells us why BS 6399, loading for buildings, is so important to her. Now, a reminder that here on The Standard Show, we really welcome your feedback. Do please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, especially on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can find us on Twitter at Standard Show and check out the show notes for all of the ways to get in touch. Do you want to help make people's lives easier, safer and more enjoyable? If so, why not become a standards maker with BSI and have your say on the development of standards? Standards affect all of us every day, wherever we go, whatever we do. By defining good practice, they help people, organizations, the economy and society to do things better. We welcome applicants from all fields, backgrounds and career stages. Our goal is to have a balance of views around the table. If you want to make a difference and shape the world through standards, start your standards making journey now by visiting bsigroup.com forward slash get involved. So in this episode, we are looking at COP26 with Martin Baxter, Director of Policy and External Affairs at the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment, the professional body for everyone working in environment and sustainability. Now, Martin is also chair of the ISO Technical Committee responsible for developing standards on environmental management systems. In this first part of our conversation, I asked Martin about one of those standards, ISO 14001, which in 2021 celebrated its 25th anniversary. I also asked him about his experience of attending COP26 and his views on its ambitions and achievements. But we started with his standards journey. Well, my standards journey started in the early 1990s, um, a long, long time ago. So I ran a, a BS7750 user group. So that was the first foray for me into the world of standards. And it was very much as environmental management systems were starting to get off the ground. Um, and I ran a, a user group of different industry sectors trying to get to uh, you know, handle on this new standard and then looking at aspects of certification. I then started engaging in actual national standards um, as ISO 14001 and some of the auditing standards were being developed in the mid-90s. And then into ISO was in the early 2000s. So that was the first time I represented the UK in the development of a global standard. And that was in 14063 on environmental communications. Um, I'm now... Um, the chair of the environmental management systems group in ISO. So, um, yeah, so I've been involved for a couple of decades. Now, you mentioned there ISO uh, 14001. I mean, over the past 25 years this year since we've had 14001, how important a standard has it become? 
I think it's been hugely important and really influential. Um, if I look at the number of users, including those with an accredited certificate and those who use it without being certified but they self-declare, um, I think it's about half a million users in 200 countries in the world. Um, so phenomenally important in terms of outreach. Secondly, you know, from you know, from my perspective, I think it's really good to see um, all organisations in sec different sectors um, across the world um, engaging in it. So whether it's heavy industry, including you know nuclear and extractives in terms of um, minerals, etc., but through into either retail, through into distribution, through into financial services. So um, and for organisations large and small, public and private. So I think you know having a standard which is there, helping organisations to improve environmental performance, and to have that scale and reach across the world is is really important and really exciting. Now, Martin, this wasn't your first COP, but could you could you take us inside the event and tell us about the buzz and atmosphere and, and how did it compare to the others you've attended? So I think, you know, in, in terms of this COP, um, a, a couple of things. So, for, you know, absolutely great to be able to meet people from different parts of the world who've got different experiences and really just engage and collaborate and discuss their approaches to helping to tackle climate change and you know and, and from different perspectives so that's really you know always really enriching and from uh, you know a practical perspective we're in the middle of covid everyone's having to show covid passports and all of the rest of it and wear masks all the time so sometimes it's a little bit difficult because you know you're talking to people through a mask um which gets a bit wearing after you know a couple of weeks at cop um and you know i think the challenge of getting everybody into Glasgow was something that was uh, difficult, and therefore, you know, many people were, including me. Um, I was in Edinburgh, um, so yeah. So there's kind of quite a long commute in every day, which you know, over a period of time, gets a bit wearing. That said, you know, it's incredibly important work. Really good to be able to engage people um, from different parts of the world, and so you know, you get past all of that. How did it compare to others? I think there were fewer people um, overall, and uh, certainly in terms of the side events that are in and around COP, um, they were all done social distanced, masked up, so you just didn't quite get that sense of um, interaction that you would have had. Um, but that said, you know, really good to see it see it happen and at a really important time. Now in, in sort of in big picture terms here, Martin, what was what was COP twenty six trying to achieve and what did it actually achieve? So you know, COP26 had some very, very clear goals. So the first one was to try and keep uh, a maximum of one and a half degrees C within reach. Um, so that's one of the big targets in the Paris Agreement. Secondly, was about trying to get this climate finance of 100 billion a year from um, developed countries to developing countries so that they can both adapt and become more resilient to a changing climate. And secondly, um, they can leapfrog it into cleaner, greener technologies. And then thirdly, it's around making sure that we become more resilient as a global community to um, to a changing climate. 
Where did we get to? Well, there were some. I mean, there were some positive uh, things that came out of COP. Uh, I think it was good to see some countries coming through, both beforehand and during COP, with enhanced ambition. So, um, India setting a target for 2070. Um, some countries like Australia setting a target of net zero for 2050. Um, encouraging. But it comes with a big but, and that but is in capital letters, because ambition without action um, is pretty meaningless. And I think when we reflect on um, the need to really drive emissions down rapidly by 2030, and what it takes to do that across a whole economy. So here in the UK, we you know, we've had the Climate Change Act since 2008. We've had since 2019 a net zero target. We've got used to having carbon budgets being set, to reporting on our performance, to developing a strategy, trying to deliver that strategy, enhancing the strategy um, over a period of time. And really, we just pretty much now got a whole economy-wide transition underway towards net zero. Um, but I would say that the UK is one of the countries that is furthest forward on this and that the majority of other countries are not in a position where they're going to be able to deliver at pace and scale. And that's the big challenge. So good to see enhanced ambition, um, but it becomes it has a big question mark over it. I think the other thing is that... Um, uh, um, the COVID backdrop in, backdrop in terms of public finances around the world um, made it impossible or not impossible because it could have been done. But the 100 billion a year um, hasn't been achieved. Um, there was a report that was done um, just before the COP started, which um, which suggested that it was going to be 2023 at the earliest to be able to start to mobilize finance at that scale. And of course, we're already seeing some significant effects from a changing climate in terms of extreme weather events, and that's likely to continue. So um, there was progress made. It was good to see the rule book um, changed, and that's going to be really important when we come on to looking at delivery and standards and trust and accountability. So I don't, I don't underestimate the importance of that aspect. More more countries around the world need to crack on and deliver this, um, get the policies in place, and start to move their whole economies to a net zero future. Now you've mentioned uh, standards there, Martin. I wonder, as a standards maker of some sort of twenty five years, how how did you approach the event? You know, what did you hope to achieve as a standards maker attending and participating in COP? Yeah, I think, you know, the role for standards is really important. And I think one is, you know, at that very, very high level is to make sure that ISO, as an international standards organization, is recognized by the UNFCCC, so that um, they're the guardians, if you like, of the convention of the role that standards can play. And, you know, I think we're in a good position on that. So over not just this COP, but other COPs as well, I've been to um, a few um, speaking on um, UNFCCC platforms about the role of ISO standards in helping to deliver climate ambition. Um, So I think one is just making sure that ISO and the role and processes that it has in being able to drive climate action um, through standardization work is recognized uh, and is seen to be there. And it was good 
to see um, ISO engaging in that um, through through the COP26 process. I think um, you know it's really important that the consensus process that ISO has that underpins the development of global standards is also recognised in. Um, and amongst other types of standards, which maybe ISO look, uh, UNFCCC looks at, so there are accounting standards and, uh, and everything else from um, global st- uh, accounting standards bodies, which are also part of this mix. Um, so I think that's important. And then I think the other one is just thinking around how countries can use standards to help drive action on the ground. So one is having that recognition through um, the UNFCCC processes. Secondly, is being able to show how standards are used um, in different economies around the world, in different sectors, to help to build trust, credibility, approaches, ways of accounting for performance, reporting on that, disclosing on it, all of that. So I think that's the that's the conversation that you want to be in, um, both in service of um, having that reflected maybe in high-level discussions, but also in and amongst all the other people who are around there where everybody's got their own initiatives that they're trying to push, and it's making sure that we can you know, position the role of international standards as a force for good in dri- driving climate action. Pretty early on in the in COP26, uh, the UN Secretary General made some comments about, about the need for standards. He said the need for clear standards to measure and analyse net zero commitments from non-state actors. I just wonder from a, uh, you're obviously there participating and obviously with your, with your standards, with standards hat on, how useful were those comments? How, how helpful was the UN Secretary General in making those comments pretty early on in the conference? Uh, incredibly helpful. I mean, to have something like that in the opening speech from the Secretary General of, of the UN is crucially important, partly because it does give you that opportunity to then drive the conversations um, with all different types of um, other stakeholders around the role that ISO standards can play. And you can keep referencing back um, to those words about clear standards, measuring and analyzing net zero commitments from non-stake actors. And if you think around the use of a lot of ISO standards is from organizations. Um, so either in terms of um, you know, tracking their performance, uh, disclosing their performance, attributing their performance across product ranges, you know, all of that um, and, and the important work that ISO does, then I think that whole positioning of the vital role of standards in helping to deliver a net zero future through um, the commercial and business sector uh, is incredibly perform- important and provides a really important platform um, for moving forward. And I think just, you know, going into COP26, there was, of course, the London Declaration where ISO was committed, you know, gave its commitment to embedding climate considerations into its standards development process and considering climate change um, in new standards that are being created and bearing in mind, obviously, ISO standards are not just management standards, they're not just uh, testing and verification standards, they're also in product standards as well. So I think it's really important that we use this as an opportunity to um, not just leverage the, the discussions in COP, but actually to bring that London Declaration uh, to uh, into reality um, with the words of the Secretary General backing that through. 
Cindy, it's that time of the episode. Shall we have the Standards Desk of News? Yep, let's do it. Credible culinary experiences. One of the highlights of travelling is trying out the local cuisine, but weeding out authentic traditional restaurants from tourist traps is no simple task. Well, a new standard has just been published to help. ISO 21621 Tourism and Related Services, Traditional Restaurants, Visual Aspects, Decoration and Services outlines requirements and recommendations for providing what's called a credible culinary experience. The standard covers everything from how the restaurant should look, table settings, staff, menu requirements and more to demonstrate that the restaurant is genuinely in line with the region and the culture it professes to be. And safety in space. With thousands of objects orbiting around in space at any moment, procedures need to be in place in order to avoid collisions. The international guidance for keeping space safe has just been updated. ISO 16158 Space Systems Avoiding Collisions Among Orbiting Objects provides agreed ways of collaborating amongst those who operate satellites to ensure the space environment is used safely and effectively. It describes a number of widely used techniques for perceiving close approaches, estimating the probability of collision and survival, and executing maneuvers to avoid collisions. And we hope to cover standards and space in a future episode. And that's the Standards Desk of News. My favourite standard. Hi, I'm Sahar Dinesh, Government Engagement Manager at BSI. So I'm a structural engineer by background. So standards were a big part of my study and design career. My favourite standard has to be one of the first standards that I ever used, and that's the old BS6399, which is now known as Eurocode 1, Actions on Structures. The first thing you have to learn as a structural engineer is how much things weigh. Eurocode 1 has many parts, but the core principle of the standards is a detailed breakdown of all the different weights and loadings on buildings and the safety factors to consider. As an engineer, this is the vital information you need to make sure your building stands up and is safe for use. Uh, it covers so many situations, how to design a dance floor for vibration, how to allow for extra loading in a library, how to consider snow loading in different regions, um, what safety factors to consider when designing a stadium or grandstand or even a snooker room. The different situations and imposed loading options are so comprehensive. I remember thinking as a graduate how detailed it was. Uh, it was also hugely inspiring. When you start out in your career, you're basically just doing structural calculations for fairly simple buildings and only use a few of the sections. But the standard was a daily reminder of the interesting and diverse routes your career as a structural engineer could take. I remember thinking maybe someday I would be designing a glass swimming pool or a cantilever between two buildings or a dance floor um, in a high rise or a stadium. Um, and I, I remember thinking, I already know what standard will help me design these safely when that day comes. Now, in this second part of my conversation with Martin Baxter, I asked Martin about the role of standards to help meet the ambitions of COP26 and how they might also support a broader environmental agenda. 
but I started by asking him about the general level of awareness of standards amongst the delegates. So how about the general understanding of, of how standards can provide solutions you know, to the climate challenge we're all facing? I just wonder you know, what it was like in the room there with all the wide variety of stakeholders and delegates uh, attending COP26. What was that sort of general understanding of, of, how, of standards like? I think it's it's fairly high. I mean, clearly, monitoring, reporting, verification is really important in the whole UNFCCC process. And ISO has got standards which really help in that regard, and that's really important. I think the where ISO's role comes in is not necessarily at the country level. So, you know, there's big issues in. UNFCCC about the veracity of country performance in terms of um, reducing emissions and uh, accounting for them. And that whole verification and trust behind that is really important in a global standard. I think when you get that then down into, so what does this mean in terms of performance and driving climate action through um non-state what they call non-state actors but basically it's organizations so businesses public authorities etc ngos or everybody who needs to be part of that this net zero journey then i think there's a a, a really good understanding that whether it's around um, disclosing your greenhouse gas emissions performance and being able to do that in a credible and consistent way there's an important role for standards where there are decisions that are being made around first, for example, procurement and the performance of your organization in terms of its supply chain, then you can certainly see how international standards can play an important role. I think the fact that ISO is international and has this um, architecture where we have national standards bodies Know, across the world is really important as well. I think that's probably less well understood. And I think probably the bit that is not quite understood as well as it could be and should be is that ISO has a really effective delivery mechanism of having its standards taken up um, at scale. Um, so, you know, to have half a million ISO 14001 users, really, really important. To have you know, for example, the 9001 QMS um, standards users, really important as well as examples of management approaches which are dealing with issues which are relevant to climate change. I think in the underpinning architecture of other global systems, so the one that I find really interesting is that, you know, ISO has a whole set of standards around international banking that enable some of the frameworks to be used um, that allow people to travel, you know, transfer money internationally and all the rest of it. And a lot of the systems use um, international standards to underpin some of that global architecture. So when we start to think about, well, what would this mean in terms of setting up global trading for um, greenhouse gas emissions, then you can certainly see how ISO standards, well, I can certainly see how ISO standards can play a really important um, role in that, A, enable, enabling systems to be able to talk to each other in different parts of the world um, in a way which can be uh, deliver trust and credibility. Um, but 
probably that isn't really pushed as hard as it could be from uh, the generally the standards making community. So I think there's a, a lot more positioning that could be done to really um, add an enhancement, uh, add an enhance um, ISO's role within um, the fabric of creating the new systems that are going to be needed in our net zero future. Now, earlier, Martin, you mentioned about the, the sort of serious ambition of COM26 and maybe the the actions that, that came out from it may not have uh, sort of met our you know, ambitious expectations. I just wonder from a standards perspective, you know, what, what were the main successes of COP26? So I, I, un, undoubtedly, um, the, the London Declaration and translating that into action um, provides a really, really good way of driving standards into um, a, a comprehensive delivery mechanism to support that net zero future and also to help to support um, the development of greater resilience to a changing climate so i think those stand you know in, in that context i think that's a really really important opportunity for um the standards making uh community to really help to make a contribution i think there are other ways in which standards will be really important as well um so the the finance commitments not from transfers from developed to developing world but actually the the way in which the financial services community um, in terms of greening finance um, is coming through undoubtedly that will need delivery systems in organizations and so you know as insurance and investment portfolios and pension portfolios are starting to um, align their investment processes into um, aligning with net zero and pushing that on to understanding the performance of assets and companies that they're investing in, then ISO standards will be a really important part of um, both being able to tell a credible story about your performance, but also having mechanisms in place and the role of standards to helping organization prioritize and drive climate action. So I think there's some really big opportunities for ISO standards to be an important part of the delivery agenda as, as we go forward. I just think then looking sort of slightly further forward, this, the road to 2050 does seem to many people sort of long and arduous. I just wonder where do you think standards will be needed most over that journey? So I think um, in quite a lot of areas, actually. So standards, you know, they permeate all different types of um organization they permeate all sorts of parts of delivery systems so if i'm looking ahead i would say firstly in terms of organizational and product footprints you know there's a real role for standardized ways of being able to account for your performance um, and in particular you know we're starting to see now that companies are asking for about the carbon intensity of products and services which are being delivered. I think ISO standards um, really do provide uh, an important opportunity to have consistent methodologies, clarity and trust behind uh, disclosure. So I think that's really important. I think um, more and more we are going to need 
um, standards to help to underpin the delivery of climate resilience, um, both in terms of organizations and across their supply systems, but also in communities and places, um, and, and, and in particular around, you know, how do you collaborate on climate resilience to um, reduce the vulnerability of uh, communities and places um, for people? I think standards can play a really important role there. And then I think, you know, the other big one is that um, with all of this action on climate change and net zero, we're seeing a lot of claims being made about products and about services and about organizations, you know, they're climate neutral, carbon positive, net zero, you know, goodness me, I mean, there are so many different claims being made by companies. And actually, the labeling standards that ISO has, both in terms of schemes around carbon offsets, um, and, you know, how credible they might be, and the performance of offset schemes, you know, you can certainly see a role for um, international standards there, the way in which organizations disclose um, information, the terminology, you know, what does net zero actually mean? Um, you know, international standards are really good at being able to drive a common vocabulary so that we can speak to each other in a common way and a clearly understood way. So I think there's, you know, there's a whole series of areas uh, of standards that are going to be needed to support um, uh, climate action. And yeah, there's a lot to do. I think the the other important thing about uh, COP is that net zero isn't the only environmental challenge that we face. So we have a biodiversity crisis, we have a plastics crisis, we have, you know, a big environmental challenge that we need to meet. And therefore, um, I think looking holistically about how do you integrate not just net zero and climate delivery, but a broader environmental agenda and the role that standards can play in helping organizations make sense of the world around them and deliver better environmental outcomes and break that link between um, the impact that they have on the environment and the economic activity that they do. I think that's really important. I think we'll see more of that as we come in from COP15, which is the International Biodiversity Convention, and as we get towards the global stock take on progress towards the Sustainable Development Goals, then I think when you look more holistically, um, ISO standards are incredibly important in the whole um, agenda of sustainability. And that, I think, is where we also need to keep uh, really relevant and keep our ac ac actions high. I didn't ask you earlier on, Cindy, but have you ever been to Glasgow? No, not yet, but it's on my list. You? Yeah, a couple of times, actually. Once in a previous job when I was doing research mm -hmm. and another time for a political studies association conference when I was a postgrad. And my abiding memory of that was a, a five-a-side tournament that we had and our match with Strathclyde University Politics Department. And I was playing for Sheffield University at the time. And it ended up so violently that I think that was the year they decided never to have a five-a-side <laughs> tournament ever again. What? Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> 
Now, I suppose, Cindy, in the same way we talk about a post-COVID world as a new normal, Mm -hmm. it feels like a similar thing here with the climate crisis, you know, how we respond to it on a daily basis for us as consumers and citizens, and also for organisations and policymakers too. It's something that will be part of our thinking and actions between now and 2050 and beyond, I guess. That's true. But I think my main takeaway from your conversation with Martin is that standards are one of the key ingredients to make rapid progress here. And the London Declaration too, such a simple but really effective idea, you know, about embedding climate considerations into standards as they come up for review. This will help to accelerate change to support climate goals. And as Martin said, countries really do need to crack on and get policies in place. Absolutely. But we should not miss some open goals here too. For example, cycling, which I talked about earlier, as a climate-friendly form of transport, wasn't to be seen anywhere on the official COP26 agenda. That's a good point. Yeah. And I think momentum is a real issue here too. Mm -hmm. There's a possibility that some countries may simply ignore aspects of the agreements reached at COP26, you know, things that they don't like. A key measure in the deal was the request for all countries to revisit and strengthen their national climate pledges by the time delegates gather in Egypt later this year. So that's definitely something to watch out for. Yeah, absolutely. Now, before we finish, we should also add that BSI sent its own delegation to COP26 and took part in events in the Blue Zone and the Fringe, including a launch event for a new initiative called Our 2050 World. You can find out more at our2050world.com. Our thanks to Martin Baxter for sharing his experiences and perspectives on COP26 and Sahar Dinesh for sharing her My Favourite Standard. And of course, our thanks to you for listening. To find out more about the relationship between standards, sustainability and climate action, visit bsigroup.com forward slash COP26. You have been listening to an episode of The Standard Show with Matthew Childs and Cindy Paragill. Subscribe to us now wherever you get your podcasts. You just heard a stripped media production. 